0: Let's have a look at, you know, what botnets are in there, what type of things are in there, what type of degree of maliciousness do we expect because we know that they're potentially going to hit, you know, a system here based on this evidence or this data. And it all comes down to should we be offensive? Should we be protecting or should we be turning around and pushing back and being offensive? You're listening to KBCast, the cybersecurity podcast for all executives. Cutting through the jargon and hype to understand the landscape where risk and technology meet. Now, here's your host, Carissa Breen.
1: Joining me today is Kylie Watson, Australian New Zealand lead client partner, national security from IBM. So Kylie, it's wonderful to have you here today. I'm really excited to hear your thoughts, your opinions. You've got a great background, so I'd love to start there. Tell me a little bit more about you and where you started and where are you now?
0: Thanks, I'm um, Great to be here. Well, I actually have an interesting background in terms of it's not a linear progression. So I started in uh, military engineering and um, was really fascinated at the time of what we were doing in the space of explosives ordnance and bridges and roads and various things that you use um, and helps on the warfare front right, in terms of disruptions, in terms of access to deployed environments. Um, I started getting really interested in the human side of it so I went and studied a sociology degree and started finding out more about how people think how groups behave why we do the things we do and um, really get into what we call the psychological operations side of military warfare so we might look like we're putting a bridge over here but actually, we're not going to access that area. We're actually going to access over somewhere else, right? So it's really just a suppose, a, 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 a mechanism or a strategy to convince the, the enemy, to say that, you know, we're doing X over here, but actually we're really doing Y. And really got into it. And so I left the military and went to engineering consulting and really got interested in, why are we putting you know, roads in where we're putting them, how we're we putting in churches and schools and town planning and wayfinding in hospitals like very different right to where I am today. and, um, and on that journey, I did a, a bit of a, a change into IT. I, I don't really know why I did, except perhaps my husband was in IT and he looked like he was really enjoying it. and I was um, you know, a bit of a we're going through what we call you know the, the great reflection. I was having a reflection back then. It was the global financial crisis, so I might be showing my age a bit here. But, yeah, starting to think about, you know, what what do I really want to do? What what really excites me? And although I was interested in the engineering side of it, I thought I am actually really interested in that cybersecurity, data security risk, and it was all sort of becoming a thing in technology back then. So I switched over and um, started to focus on data risk, and then linked into cybersecurity risks because every time there was data risks, data breaches, data issues, and nearly always went to the heart of being security. And I went back to uni and I studied data and, and cybersecurity risk and, um, and then started running teams of cybersecurity experts. And of course, with my military background, it made sense that I would take those learnings, particularly in a skill shortage, back into that national security space. So probably long-winded, um, potted, you know, history there. But, um, yeah, interesting from engineering over to IT, you know, national security, um, you know, at the beginning and then rounded off and back to national security again.
1: Wow, I love that. I don't think that was that long-winded at all, to be fair. <laughs> I think that was very short. Uh, and I ask this because I think it's it's really lending itself to my next question. You've got a great background, very diverse, and the question I want to know from you is why do people get into cybercrime? Now you've got that strong sociology background. And so I'm really keen to hear your thoughts, especially being in IT, cyber, the military, national security. What's the motivation for cybercrime? And you've mentioned to me in the past, it's similar to how people fall into street gangs. So I'm really keen to hear your thoughts.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So I think there's two key areas we have to look at with two you know, main um, themes of actors. So we've got the nation state actors and then we've obviously got the organised criminal gangs. And there's slightly different motivations um, for each of those groups. So we go to the, you know, the, the exciting one, the cyber uh, organised criminal gangs. Uh, when you think about it, A lot of the people that ended up in these spaces in organised crime, they tend to, and the research shows, uh, they tend to be looking at thrill-seeking, rebellion. They tend to have a sense of injustice, uh, a lot of the time struggling for acceptance. And they're really looking uh, for a sense of belonging. You know, how do I actually belong? And that's not too different to a lot of the research that was done on street gangs, particularly those back in the 90s in New York, and when there was you know significant issues there about you know what they were actually looking for, and it was a sense of belonging, and where that came from is a theory that we call anime theory. So, anime theory is essentially um, describing people who are drawn to crime. People who are drawn to crime quite often under this theory. Have tried legitimate ways to get ahead. They've tried to learn at school, and perhaps they've had you know learning disorders, or or they've had difficult um, family lives that haven't supported that, or socioeconomic constraints. Whatever it is, they've they've tried to get ahead. They've tried to get a job and you know a good paying job, and they've been bullied, or something's happened, or maybe the people they've associated with have undermined that. And so, it it shows that people intrinsically do try to do the right thing apart from. Yes, less than 1% that are sociopaths. But the majority of us do try to do the right thing. And so, anatomy theory shows that these people try to do the right thing again and again, and they keep getting undermined, and they just can't catch a break. They just can't get ahead. And if anyone watches or has ever watched the TV shows Shameless, you'll get it. Because there's a whole bunch of characters in a family there from a significantly disadvantaged background and they keep trying to get ahead and every time they do, you see something happens and they just come straight back down again to where they were. And it's... Um, it's all wrapped up into what we also call social learning theory. And I don't want to throw lots of theory, So I promise it's a, the last bit of theory I'll throw at you, where individuals develop motivations and skills to commit crimes through the exposure to others involved in crime. So if you associate with deviant peers, you know, you, you're going to end up like that. And, you know, I when I was a kid, my it was horrible when you think about it now, but my dad used to say, you lie down with dogs, you get up with fleas. And, and that sort of jumps into my head when I think of this, because I think, well, of course, you know, and so all of these things are, are drawn together. And um, they, they get a sense of uh, acceptance in, in this world. And it goes to the, um, I suppose what we call the virtual environment, because it's less tangible, you feel less likely to get caught. The law is um, very murky. It's not like robbery and murder, you know, where it's tangible fines, you do it physically. It's a bit harder to cover up than it is in the cyber world. And so they feel, uh, it's almost like a, they don't kind of think they're going to get caught. And, um, and so it becomes more attractive for them. And, you know, those that are particularly susceptible are those uh, who have what we call internet addiction disorder do worry that my youngest son, I think a lot of us worry about our kids like this, you know, spend a lot of time on the internet. But internet addiction disorder is similar to alcoholism, right? It's a real social dilemma. And what it means is people are getting this socialization, this sense of belonging, they develop a persona even, yeah, and I have to admit, I play Pokemon. Um, I have a persona on Pokemon that is absolutely not like me, right? Uh, so you could be somebody different on the internet and that makes it feel like it's a bit less tangible that you might get caught and you can become popular online. And we see these movie stereotypes of, you know, maybe the the person who's a bit physically challenged, you know, doesn't do any exercise, sitting on the couch, you know, eating chips, playing uh, gaming and and um you know interacting with other people online and it's a bit of a stereotype but you can also see and and realize that actually that is a thing they 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 do get a sense of belonging they do become addicted and they do learn from each other because there's chat rooms and they can be someone that they're perhaps not normally um when they present and, and normally is always a an interesting word in sociology but you know that this becomes a normalised um the person becomes a normalised part of who they are and so they really don't um think uh, that what they're doing is wrong in a lot of these cases it's almost like a job or it's almost like everyone else is doing it and I'm less likely to get caught so the motivations and the skills are, are very much about that sense of belonging in a group.
1: Wow. That's awesome. There's so much going on there when you're talking. Okay. So my stepfather is a criminal judge and he obviously puts people in prison. And one day I asked him, Hey, if these people or children had a better upbringing, do you think that they would have committed the crime? And he said, no. And so my question to you, Kylie would be, Do you think a lot of these people are sort of just born into it? Like maybe if, I don't know, maybe their parents are criminals and then they're a criminal or like you said before lay down with dog, get up with fleas. There's always that um, analogy we like to use around you are the top five people you hang around. So if your friends are criminals, there's a high probability you're going to be one. Is there a bit of that in there from what you're saying? A little bit.
0: Like in, in terms of there are ways and means to be able to try to get out of that. Not everybody, you know, in enemy theory there are some that actually get a leg up and it's usually when a teacher might lean in when they're younger and actually care about them and show them a different pathway and, and really support and sponsor and mentor them or perhaps there was someone that was in the juvenile um, system where somebody actually you know a social worker whoever it is took the time and the effort to show them a different pathway or perhaps a mentor or somebody because it's not as easy as you're know, correlating it to something like oh well, you, you're born into it because um it yeah, is the environment around you but there are ways and means to be able to step out of it it's just that it's difficult for them and it's not that everyone um, is has this disadvantaged background by the way and there are also political motivations you may have be born into a family that's very political and you've decided that you um you're going to take that to the next level right so again the people around you might be quite political but you don't have quite a sense of belonging to quite fit perhaps with you know what they're doing and, and you are remember the thrill seeking the rebellion the sense of injustice so it really depends on the, the actual personality and the wiring of the person as well and we're just talking here about the um the organized crime right there's a whole different set of motivations for the nation-states
1: yeah, no, you're absolutely right. And I guess, look, we're not blanking, blanketing everyone with the same brush. It's just more talking like theoretically about things. Um, you made a good statement before is if people are undermined, then is it then that they resort to crime? So you're saying like they get pushed down, pushed back constantly, and then it's sort of this, um, this vicious cycle. And then is it sort of after, I don't know, a thousand times something's gone wrong that a lot of these people are then resulting to the crime
0: no i think it's more like the street gang theory right and we see you know these potentially it doesn't have to be younger but you, you see these younger people who are looking for that belonging and they're looking to uh, with the online it's so much easier to be someone you're not it's so much easier to be cool you know you have a different persona to what you might actually be you could be a different gender you know you could portray yourself to be in a different country and just, you know, um, hide and, and root, you know, where you're actually from in terms of your digital footprint. So I think it's uh, a whole f- number of factors. You know, there's the social learning theory, anime theory, internet addiction disorder, and it just happens to be the right culmination of those things for that personality, for that person to go, you know what, I think, and they encourage each other, the chat rooms in particular, who's leading the chat room, um, you know, and... You know, who's actually the leader? Do I aspire to be like them as well? So it's just all these individual senses of connections.
1: Talk to me a little bit more about internet addiction disorder. Yes. So internet addiction
0: disorder, like I'd said, it's similar to alcoholism. It's and if you've watched the social dilemma, um, you know, a lot of this, yeah, is wired for you to spend more time on it, right? And so you wrap everything up in it and it's really difficult to get away from the internet so the more people are on the internet the more likely they are to lose their human social connections face to face and if you look at COVID I haven't seen stats on it and I when I talk about we need more research you know I'd love to go and have a look if there's been any research on this but I would imagine that there was a lot more time spent online And therefore, there's a lot more um, exposure potentially to being recruited into some of these cyber criminal gangs or, yeah, because you're just spending more time online and you're just exposed more to this kind of, you know, potential to be approached or potential to meet people, you know, that are giving you a sense of belonging and may have malicious intent that you don't know about yet.
1: Yeah, I think I've sort of read in the past, uh, even people are getting to like terrorism stuff. That's how they're like, oh, well, they gave me a sense of belonging and then I fell into it type of thing, like without them knowing, like it wasn't like a conscious decision. And then all of a sudden they're, they're amongst it from what I've heard. The other thing as well, uh, earlier this year, Wall Street Journal brought out this uh, limited like podcast. It was called Hack Me If You Can. Um, the short version of it was uh, a guy that basically something happened in his car, I think and he couldn't Pay it off, or there was some issue, and so his friend said, oh, "I'll just get into like doing like cybercrime stuff." And then he said very quickly, he paid off the debt to this car. But then he goes, "But then I just stayed in it, and I couldn't give it up because it was just too easy money." Uh, and I found that really interesting that he just stayed in it because he's like, "Wow, I don't even have to leave my house. I don't even have to work that much." Um, And he was saying he was making so much money a day, that would be like more than he could potentially make in a month with his skill set, like if he were to go back into the workforce.
0: It's so true. I know I had a conversation with my husband a while ago, and we were joking that, you know, exposed to this every day. And we're looking at the colonial pipeline at the time of the attack over in um, the US on the eastern seaboard You know that obviously had fuel pressures. And resulting in you know people fighting at, at the pumps and things and, and looking at the other social impacts of that. And they walked away, I think it was about five million dollars. And um you know, I was talking to my husband and he goes, We're in the wrong business. Like seriously, it was they weren't a major organised criminal gang. That was you know quite a, a small uh, group of individuals that, you know, morphed together and um, decided to do this. It wasn't a highly sophisticated nation state or organised crime type of attack and uh, of course we're never going to do it but I can see why because you know and you go back to anime theory might be in a job you're trying to get ahead you haven't got a promotion you're trying to do the right thing and then the wrong thing just seems easier and it's a bit cool and gives you a bit of belonging and yeah is going to help you with your finances then you can understand you know people may be predisposed to those theories and those backgrounds may be more likely to, um, to do that and to go, okay. And like I said earlier, it feels less tangible. You feel like you're less likely to get caught because you're not, you, when you go and hold someone up, right? The service station, it's a physical person there with a gun or a knife or whatever, threatening and saying some words, right? That, that's tangible. It's physical. There's evidence there, but a lot of that goes away when you look at online crime.
1: Absolutely. And I was interviewing uh, a guy in the UK. So he's a global cybersecurity advisor for ESET and he worked uh, in the police force for 14 years, I believe, or 18 years. And he was saying that it's 1% of people they catch when it comes to cybercrime. And he goes, and even if we do, Carissa, he goes, they get limited jail time. It's really hard to prove or they've done another country and then there may be no treaties involved or that's it they don't have to be extradited to the uk so there's so many like loopholes which makes it inherently easier and the question that i asked him was like you know i'm not a criminal but if i were to be a criminal it'd be a lot easier to to commit cyber crime right but if you go and you murder someone the, the penalties are a lot harsher right so it's like yeah and you see the person's face right you see the fear you know you don't see that it's it's faceless yes absolutely so then I guess all the things that you mentioned today on the theories, the internet addiction disorder, as well as COVID, would you anticipate that obviously, your yes, cybercrime is getting worse, but do you think what's happened with recent time, it's going to accelerate this? And like you said, it is faceless. We can't actually see um, from an you know, empathetic point of view, like we're hurting people because we can't see them.
0: Yeah, it's definitely accelerating and we can see, you know, there's all these different statistics, but all of them agree that we are facing larger, uh, more advanced, more persistent, automated threats than we've ever faced before and we've obviously got the skill shortage. And then you look at, you know, the responses. One of the things people often forget is that you're defending this, you're constantly surveilling it. And if you look at the human side of it, which, you know, is obviously my expertise, it's that you have to, you're under pressure, you have decision fatigue all the time. And you just imagine you're just defending, defending, defending. But when you're an attacker, oh, you could go have some lunch, and then come back again, you know, and start attacking, maybe just click the button and automates and does the things you want it to. And so there's a lot less pressure on the attacker than there is on the responder. And so it, it means that, you know, it, it is increasing and it, it is easier to be an attacker than it is to be a defender or a responder.
1: So on that note, what would be some of your recommendations? Like it is going to get worse. I mean, it's not an easy answer and I know that, but I'm just curious to hear from your point of view with your background and things that you're seeing in your role, what can sort of people start to to take away from this, especially if they do have children and stuff like that and they're like, oh my gosh, like this potentially could Maybe something that they never thought that their child may fall into. Like do you have any sort of advice?
0: Yeah, I do think we need to do more research on the motivations and behaviours and go even deeper. A lot of the cyber security, criminal behavioural research has only been done in the last few years, and prior to that, a lot of it was more just on general criminal behaviour. So not cyber related specifically. And I know there's a study, a really cool study that's being done at the moment on can you work out the degree of maliciousness of the attack based on the different patterns, you know, based on the different technologies used, the networks, the servers, you know, what cloud bases, databases exfiltrated, that, that type of thing. But I think um, you've got to go a step back and go, you know, we've got all these interventions for crime and when there's still crime. Crime still exists. It's always going to exist to some form or extent in society. It's just how we are. It's been like that since, you know, men and, and I shouldn't say mankind, should I, what, what do we say now, <laughs> since time began, right, since people have been on the planet. And so we do need more research on it, though, to help reduce it because when we do the more research and put the more time and effort and have the interventions like I mentioned earlier with the social workers and teachers and, and other people out there in the community, then we will be more effective in getting people to understand, hey, you know, this is not okay. And I worry, I really worry about things like you we know, may have seen in the news that you know, was recently, um, from some young boys at a boys' school and I won't mention the school, but who, you know, we're saying some pretty horrific and, and horrible things that you shouldn't really be saying at all and, and you shouldn't be putting in writing and then you see um, some of the the other behaviors and and things that are occurring around you and you know I've overheard some nasty voicemails and things that you know teen girls send each other and I think is this where it's starting now they're getting away with this kind of behavior and we don't stop it and we don't have an intervention will it get worse so are we actually escalating by not having these interventions particularly with younger people coming through
1: Yeah, it's so true. I uh, have been told from friends of mine what's happening to some of their children. I'm just like, gosh, it was never that vicious when I was at school, which, you know, it was only probably about 13 years ago. So it wasn't that long ago, but they've definitely upped the ante in in terms of the savageness. So yeah, you're, you're, you're right. I think if we don't intervene, it could spiral out of control. But I'd like to switch gears now and I'd like to talk to you about PSYOPs. So what is it specifically? Yeah,
0: so PSYOPs is more in the nation state space, right? So what we call the information warfare space and it's psychological operations. And there's actually a really good example uh, with the Ukraine-Russia conflict that I can talk to on it. But essentially PSYOPs is you know, looking at how you disrupt confused with a credible threat and has to be credible and based in a little bit of fact um, an enemy or um, how you actually get them to you know start thinking down the path that you want them to think so you're essentially trying to start running the brains of your enemy rather than their commanders and traditional chain of command doing it and so some really uh, good examples in history have been a lot of people don't realize this but Um, The toppling of the Saddam Hussein statue in 2003 was actually from an army PSYOPs team who had got a whole bunch of people rounded up and did that as an emotional reaction around the world to show that the regime had toppled, right? So it wasn't, yeah, it, it was engineered, Um, In 1944, I think it was, this is one of the earlier examples um, in modern history where the US recorded prisoners of war and they reproduced the sound of lots and lots of tanks and lots of artillery fire sounding and and misled the German troops that they had at broadcast, misled the German um, hierarchy and um, officers and, and troops to think that they had a greater presence than what they actually had. The one I love the most and it's in um, ancient history is Genghis Khan. So Genghis Khan, he was a pretty nasty guy, but he had psyops nailed. And what he did, and this is very gross, but what he would do, uh, he would go and lay siege to a city and he would kill a whole bunch of people on the way through, right, and then he would get the dead bodies, he'd collect to them and they'd be a bit blotted and a bit ducky and Um, he would get his troops to throw them over the castle walls and actual bodies, right? So can you imagine you're in your castle area, you've got the enemy coming down on you, but on top of that, he would tie brushes to the tails of his horses and he was in a particular dry, dusty area of the Mongol Empire desert, you know, where dust would, you know, be absolutely a thing. And so what would happen is he'd come down with his cavalry with these brushes tied to the tails of the horses which would sweep up the dust. So the people behind the the castle walls or, you know, the, the fortified areas would just see these clouds of dust just coming at them and they would do, you know, the loud hooting, scary, horrible, guttural noises and screaming as they came through and then fling their bodies, you know, over the walls would you run away <laughs> you know would you surrender would you go there's no hope so so the idea of the psyops and how that's being used in cybersecurity security now it's really recent um so with the ukrainian russian conflict and you know this is in the news and in the media and quite well known so i, I don't think i'm trying to just transgressing any national security boundaries in, in this one but Um, What they've done in the Ukrainian um, areas where they've actually captured is Russia has gained control of the internet. So they've rerouted the internet through Russian providers. and The internet that is now provided to the Ukrainians in these captured areas is monitored, right? It's restricted. It has censorship. The Ukrainian networks have been blocked. So they have to go through the Russian internet Uh, Russia has been handing out free SIM cards and even to some extent, some free phones. So these people really have no choice, but if they want to talk to family and friends, they want a connection and we all crave connection, uh, they have to use these Russian-operated systems. And Starlink, and we we hear about Elon Musk providing the free internet services to Ukraine, um, Starlink is having to focus on helping the military effort. I think, I could be wrong, I think it was only about 15,000 free user kits they were able to issue to the civilians from the Starlink and the rest of it has been used by the Ukrainian military. So regardless of which side you're on in that conflict, just think about it, that, that it's all being rerouted, right? So they're not getting the information from the sources they previously had and they have no choice in it. And so that's a classical psychological operations in the, the you know, the internet and everything, they're now having to... Um, they're being disrupted. They're being confused. It's a credible threat. Um, it, it's logical and factual. You know, everyone needs to be able to to access their phones and and have contact. And it's been subjected to disinformation and propaganda.
1: Wow. well, wow. that's uh, that's really interesting because I guess that's what leads me to my next point. And from my understanding, from what you've said, is that there's just not enough being done then from a psyops perspective, I guess from a cyber war then perspective, just touching on the Ukraine-Russia thing.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And I think more generally too. So if we look at, and what I hadn't covered is the motivation of those that join the nation states. And a lot of that is nationalism, right? So it's, you know, if you join a cyber criminal gang, it's a sense of belonging. Uh, quite often dollars, you mentioned before, walking away with some money. Uh, it could sometimes be a bit of sense of injustice. But if you look at the nation states, you know, it's much, very much about nationalism. It's usually a lot of ex-military involved in there. And there's a lot of psychological operations that go on. And in terms of research, we've just not done enough and don't have enough in the psychology or sociology space for this it has not been a large focus and we do have a cyber skills engineering shortage we, we have general shortages across cyber security but i have to say you know in my own experience it's very difficult to actually get the people who are hands-on tools as well so we need to find a way to get those who are more interested in the humanities uh, to start thinking about this and those that say particularly teenagers and I have teenagers myself, so I you know I encounter a lot of teenage discussions about what they're going to do with their lives, and they talk about, well, I'll do criminal psychology. And it's not usually in the curriculum to do cyber security criminal psychology. So I think we need to start, like in the universities at the moment, I've just finished um, writing some courses with some universities um, who are introducing cyber security courses. Perhaps we start with universities and have it, as some options to focus on cyber psychology. Because some of it is happening, but it's really only quite new and we don't have the depth of research that we need. And how do we defend when we don't know the degree of maliciousness? We don't know all of the motivations. It's harder to defend.
1: So you make a couple of interesting points, one of which I think was recently, like last week, the Victorian government said that they're going to waive, like, nursing, to study nursing, they're going to waive the fees. Do you think the government should do it for security? Now, I know there's a few things like uh, that that is floating around in this space. I think in Wollongong, there's, you can do your degree, but then you also sort of get like a quote unquote apprenticeship type of model or you've got your standard scholarship stuff. But do you think maybe if the government opened that up, that would encourage people to study engineering or it's not really going to make a difference from your perspective?
0: No, I think it would encourage it. I think... I do a lot of, um, you know, try to give back a lot and I do a lot of interviews of young people who are looking to get their first jobs, you know, outside of university and I've had some really interesting experiences in in doing that and one of them has been very much saying to a, a very smart young man, I remember, he had sort of 95% and everything, and he done a Capture the Flag with Amazon and was in the top five of the country and, you no, know, it was really super keen. And he wanted to go to a top university. And I felt a bit bad, but I had to sort of pull him down a bit because uh, it was a little arrogant. And I said to him, do you realise that somebody could leave school, do some micro-credentials in cybersecurity, learn to um, code? Perhaps they go to TAFE, perhaps they don't. But they might actually beat you uh, if you're going for a job with, let's say a big four company or a major technology company because they have more hands on practical knowledge. And the universities, some of them, not all, but some of them are a bit behind in that. And he sort of looked at me with his mouth open because he'd, he'd been wired to think I'd be the best in everything. I don't to know, the top university, I get to the top marks, you know, I win everything, not actually understanding that. You know, there are so many other programs out there and the need at the moment is for practical hands-on tools right now. And so I think we have to think about how we make this really obvious. So there was a, only one female I interviewed. There was a batch of 20 that I was helping. There was only one female in it. And she got to me and she said, actually, I didn't pick this, but all the other interviews were full and they stuck me with you. Oh, okay. Thanks. Okay, with
1: you. Okay.
0: And I said, okay. Well, do you want me to interview you? Or do you want me to tell you about cybersecurity? She goes, yeah. Tell me about cybersecurity. So I started telling her some of the stuff we were doing, and she was like, wow, that is so cool. I had no idea. So maybe it's just education, you know, of these people. And I do. I did run into her uh, a few weeks ago. And she, I don't know if she was joking, I, I hope she wasn't, but she said, I'm absolutely wide. I've gone and had a look at all the universities and I'm going to study cybersecurity." I thought, well, great, because, you know, I've, I've planted the idea in her head. But one of the things, and Sarah I've noticed and I was very impressed by, was one of the universities I was helping running and designing their program, we did a competitive search, you know, on the other universities, and one of them did not require an ATAR at all for entry or a pathways program. And I thought that's actually really smart because if you, as long as they get in there and they can actually do the work and you have it so that, you know, the first subject is not one that they run away and go, this is too hard. Then that's a good attractor because after COVID, a lot of these young people are really struggling and not knowing what they want to do and they're scared about their marks and, you know, what, what am I going to do? And if you have a university entry with no ATAR, you know, that's a, a big incentive, right, to, um, to go, I might apply for this course.
1: Well, then you're letting the, the, the barrier down. There's then more people for entry perhaps. Maybe they didn't get great marks, but, hey, maybe they'd make a brilliant cybersecurity engineer. So I'm curious to know, with the lady that you were sitting with and she says, I had no idea that's what it was, what was her idea, do you know? Now, she thought it
0: was a bunch of programmers that um just sat there doing Cody stuff, capture the flag kind of stuff. And she sort of thought, you know, this is from her words, it was sort of like a whole bunch of nerdy guys all getting together in a room. And, you know, it is well-dominated right now. Uh, there's a lot of industries that are though as well, and there's a lot of industries that are female dominated too. So she had a stereotype in her head that was not actually correct. And I do I mentor a a, a very amazing young woman uh, in a government department who was in a security operations centre, and she was, you know, I have to program, I have to to learn this deep technical side of it. And I pointed out to her that there are a number of other careers, and she works in the pen testing team now and just got a promotion. So. For her, she, she's realized that she doesn't actually have to program that we need more people to program, but do, doing pen testing is actually a technical thing as well. And the uh, analytics side of it in the security operations center. So there's so many different careers and I don't think they realize it. They think it's just the, the sitting there heads down. I wasn't good at coding at school. It was all a bit scary. So I can't be in cyber.
1: Yeah, I know that's absolutely uh, a massive uh, stigma in the space that people just assume. So that's why we like to interview people like yourself to break down all of those barriers and understand that there are multiple roles depending on what skill set you do have. I'd like to understand a little bit more. I mean, you've touched on this a little bit, but I'm keen to hear from your perspective that you've mentioned that more research in our industry does need to be conducted um, specifically around the degree of malicious intent. So talk to me a little bit more about this.
0: Yeah, so um, what we want to be able to do is to work out how much attention we should be spending on the attacks that are coming through, all the compromises that we're seeing. So we need to be able to, um, to, to give you an idea, you know, you can tell if it's a complex, if it's a complex attack, it's usually a nation state. So, you know, expert um cryptographics maybe homomorphic encryption detailed knowledge of um, how they could concierge through countries that don't contain data logs um, you know expert programming mastering of telecommunications you know that sort of thing so then you start to know it's a nation state but then you have to know the geopolitical context so you know which country do we think this is coming from And, and let's say it's a country close to us that we haven't been having good political discourse with lately, then we need to start going, okay, well, what type of attack was that? And there's actually um, degrees um, of attack. So there's uh, access disruption and forced or armed. So when we look at access, we're looking at, you know, they're just going in and, and perhaps doing some port scanning network mapping you know they've got access to your systems and and that's not particularly malicious um then there's sort of the disruption so they're looking to degrade or disable systems perhaps it's non-critical infrastructure usually the ransomware type of thing where you, know, you give them some money and they'll they'll go away they're doing it from and from that perspective they will give you your data back um, and then there's the the force armed type of attack. So, you know, what are they trying to do? Is it death and destruction? Is it, um, you know, damage to the, the point of critical infrastructure or systems? And and why we want to know, you know, where that is? Is it it might start with access, with the intent is to get to the the forced or the armed. And when you think about that stat that. Uh, An infiltrator could be in your systems for up to 200 days before you actually know it or see it. Um, We want to know um, the degree of maliciousness and the origins of where it potentially comes from in more detail. Do we think that this is an access that's going to move through to an armed or a forced attack, or is it perhaps just an access? Um, So I think it's an area that's completely... um, unstudied really in in terms of actual there's only one university i know of that's actually looking at let's have a look at you know what botnets are in there what type of things are in there what type of degree maliciousness do we expect because we know that they're potentially going to hit you know a system here based on this evidence or this data and it all comes down to should we be offensive should we be protecting or should we be turning around and pushing back and being offensive
1: so do you anticipate that more research will be done outside of this one university that you named or you're unsure at this stage?
0: Look, I think there will be more being done. I, I give talks at you know various conferences and I like it because there's a usually two or three people who are in that more forensic investigative space that come up to me and go, yes, yes, I love what you're saying. We have to do more. And then they say, okay, well, can we get some funding and it's like, well, I work with one company, we can only fund so much, right? We can't fund the, the entire scope of, you know, all the things that need to be done. So we, we do need to get more companies to invest, not just in, you know, their own, um, to their own benefit in the skill shortage, you know, how they can, benefit from, from this, but we need them to go and give back and to, to fund and to help and to help set up those programs at university and, and also to help fund some of these research. You know, Is it through PhDs? Is it through, um, you know, residencies? Whatever it is, we, we need more of it because it's just not out there. There's funding for a whole lot of other things, but there's not the funding at the moment uh, in a huge degree. There will be pockets, you know, and there will be areas, and it has increased in the last few years. But I have to say five years ago, you know, I stood up and I think there was only about 20 credible sources. Now you go onto Google Scholar and you'll see a whole heap coming through. But then when you sift through them, you realize there's really not that many still.
1: So would you say with your network that conversations are being had within the industry to say, Hey, like, let's get a couple of companies together. Let's fund this in terms of research. Is that happening or not quite yet?
0: No, I think the focus at the moment is on the cyber skills shortage and the engineering and getting people to be able to operate the security operations centres, to be able to, um, you know, have that deeply technical engineering capability. And I know, you know, Department of Defence have got some fantastic programs. Uh, there's, your know, Defence College um, has a whole bunch of things and it's growing, but the focus, and, and it needs to be as well, right? We can all... The analysts and you know all look at the motivations of the behavior and then not actually know how to shut it down once they're in our system so and a lot of the times the forensic investigation is done after the fact Um, we need to be everything's moving to online uh, now automated you know current environment uh, real time So it's all very well having an attack and going off and investigating it and coming back with a report. And, yes, perhaps that can feed the next attack in terms of helping on how to respond to it, but we need it in real time. And the only way we're going to get it in real time is if these engineers actually have this information themselves as well or we have specialists in the security operations centres that are analysing this. And obviously in things like information warfare, division and Australian cybersecurity specialists in this space, but there's a skill shortage and they can't get enough people.
1: Yes, of course, and I'm acutely I'm aware that we definitely need to prioritise things. It's all, it's all well and good to have these wants and needs and aspirations, but, of course, yes, we've got to start and, and prioritise these things. So, Kylie, I really appreciate your time today. Is there any sort of uh, closing remarks or any final thoughts that you'd like to leave our audience with today?
0: Yeah, I think a key thing is not to forget the small to medium businesses right so there are I've spoken today about the um nation states I've spoken about the organized criminal gangs and they tend to go for the big stuff uh but like I'd mentioned with the colonial pipeline pipeline and we see it with the high mum cyber threat that's just my mum actually got pinged by that a few weeks ago and I was talking to a local Small to medium business is a mortgage provider who asked for my husband's credit card over the uh, email my husband just happily sent it to him. And I'm just now compiling because he says, I don't understand why that's wrong. So I'm just compiling a whole bunch of dot points to him and getting them off to him on and why he shouldn't be asking for that. So I think we also need, you know, once we've done the big stuff, we can't forget the small to medium enterprises and the mums and dads and the aunties and uncles and, you know, all the other people around and, and help with, um. You know, looking at, there are motivations and they're, they're not as sophisticated, but there are people out there who you can buy this stuff on the dark web, they can just download hacking packages and can quickly walk away with, you know, a few tens of thousands of dollars. So we have to be vigilant across every sector of society and, and every cohort. And, you know, it, it's just something we have to be aware of in our homes, in our families, in our workplaces, where we play sport, you know,
1: in our lives. I think that's wonderful. And I really appreciate you coming on the show today because I I know that you're busy. You've got a lot of stuff going on and you're always out there doing presentations. So I am very appreciative of your time and for you sharing your thoughts, your insights and your experiences with us today.
0: No, thank you, Carissa. I really enjoyed being here and it's great to, to share these thoughts. And if we can at least get, you know, one extra person out there going, hey, I want to go and study this space then yeah, we've done a good job.
1: Thanks for tuning in. We hope that you found today's episode useful and you took away a few key points. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast to get our latest episodes.
0: This podcast is brought to you by MerckSec, the specialists in security, search and recruitment solutions. Visit mercksec.com to connect today.
1: If you'd like to find out how KBI can help grow your cyber business, then please head over to kbi.digital.
0: This podcast was brought to you by KBI.media, the voice of cyber.